There's no getting away from the tragic situation in the Middle East as the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues. Here to give us his take on the crisis and to update us on the mood in the United States, I'm joined from Northern Virginia by retired Army Colonel Douglas McGregor. Good evening, sir. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Good evening. Uh, the US are ramping up. Uh, Israel has said it will wipe Iran off the face of the earth if Hezbollah intervenes in Gaza. Turkey offers to mediate. Well, Secretary of State Blinken says in US not interested. What happens next, Colonel? Well, first, Neil, let me uh, say that you're a tough act to follow. I couldn't find anything that you said at the outset of the program that I could not agree with. And I would go one step further and mention that Professor Schulhammer's comments about the world aligning with reality as opposed to this post-war order that is crumbling around it is spot on. And Israel, of course, is part of that old order. I, I think what's happened in, in Washington is very simple. Uh, Israel commands the height in Washington. Uh, thanks to the distribution of wealth, that means large numbers of people in the Senate and the House have signed on because they're effectively being purchased. Their votes are 100% with Israel. There's also a certain amount of sentimentality attached to that, but I wouldn't underestimate the impact of greed in Washington. Then there's ignorance, ignorance of the world, no understanding whatsoever of the danger in which Israel finds itself right now. Uh, Israel set out, in theory, to destroy Hamas. It is now confronting an increasingly united Islamic world. In fact, for the first time in a thousand years, you have the Shiites and the Sunni who are united with one purpose. That is to stop Israel, halt this bloodletting, end what's happening in Gaza. Instead of responding to this, the President of the United States historically always has, you're escalating. And this is something I think that Mr. Netanyahu is betting on very heavily, that Israel, together with our military power, can ultimately prevail. And I think that's a very serious mistake. Uh, our army is smaller than it's ever been. It, most of its combat power is pointlessly deployed in places like Poland and Romania and Baltic states where it's supposed to defend against Russia, which has no intention whatsoever of attacking Eastern Europe. Then most of our air power is not what it was 30 years ago. We're, this is not 1991. We can't put 5,000 fighters in the air and hundreds of bombers. Uh, we put four carrier battle groups into the region two up in the Mediterranean, one in the Persian Gulf, and probably one in the Red Sea. But their sortie rates are very limited. They have to fly a long distance to deliver their bombs, their ordnance, or quite frankly, they risk losing those ships. In other words, the technology has changed. The way wars are fighting, are being fought, uh, has changed. We haven't kept up with that. And then finally, the President of the United States could end all of this very quickly. He could simply tell Mr. Netanyahu, that's it, no further, stop. And at that point, the Israeli military establishment would have to hold its operation to keep a meeting with the Turks and the Iranians and eventually say, it's time for us to sort out this trial, come up with a solution. But no one will go there. How could it be, Colonel, that the it would appear that the U.S., is contemplating a Middle East that no longer exists, that they're, that, they're, that they're contemplating dealing with the Middle East of, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. How can that be? Well, you, you've just described a condition that afflicts Washington. 
Washington lives in the past. Washington lives perpetually in 1991. Uh, all you have to do is listen to the politicians, especially Biden speak. He gave a speech the other night and made it sound as though we were on the threshold of World War II. We all have to mobilize. It, this is utter insanity. We don't live in that world. The world of 91 is long since passed. We are perhaps the greatest of the great powers, but we're not the only superpower. We are absolutely not the indispensable nation. Most regional problems need to be solved by the people who live in those regions, not us. And our insistence on intervention and on interference has created chaos in the Middle East. This is something no one in Washington either understands or even if they did, would care to admit. What, what is the likely future that you imagine or envision for Israel when you look two and three moves ahead in what might be inevitable? What happens to Israel? Well, my argument uh, is that we need to save Israel from itself. Uh, this is something I've said from the very beginning. I'm not anxious to see Israel destroyed. I'm not anxious to see millions of people, whether they live in Egypt, or Syria, or Jordan, or anyone else, be killed. But right now, uh, we are on a very dangerous path, let's be frank. The Arab states that surround Israel are not the same as they were 40 years ago or 50 years ago in 1973. They have more technology, more capability. Their populations are better educated and more capable as a result. And to this, you must add Iran, enormous air and space power, very sophisticated leadership, a bureaucratic power in its armed forces. To this, you must also add Turkey. The Turks have the largest army in NATO, the largest armed forces, period. They're ferocious fighters, and they are deeply committed to ending the affront to Sunni Islam. This means we're headed for a regional war, and once it's joined, it will be very difficult for us to stop it. I think the world, at least in the Middle East, is waiting for the President of the United States to step forward and say, that's enough. We in the West, we in the United States are de-escalating. And that would signal to the Israelis that there has to be some sort of arrangement, a new arrangement, that addresses these concerns. They don't want to do that. Now, I'm not saying all Israelis don't want to do it. There are probably at least 40% of the Israeli uh, electorate that agrees with you and everything you said at the beginning. But they're not in power. And I would tell you that most Americans pay no attention to anything that happens beyond their borders, least of all in the Middle East. They, they're sitting there saying, oh, well, this is just another Middle East war. Let's help the Israelis. It'll be over in a few weeks. They don't understand what's changed either, and no one is telling them. Colonel, bear with me while I just get a, a response from a guest that I have in the studio with me. R Ralph, you, that, I find that a very, a very believable, a very frightening assessment of a situation. What, I, I, how do you feel listening to the Colonel there? I, I completely agree with the Colonel. I would maybe just add one wrinkle, and I, I think we'll find agreement there as well, which is, of course, that uh, particularly for the Arab states, the Israel-Palestine conflict is also a dom of domestic interest for them. I mean, generally, I don't think that the government in Saudi Arabia or the government in Egypt really wants to go to war on behalf of Hamas. But, of course, they know, as the Colonel correctly pointed out, that their population sees it differently. So they try now to threat, and I hope that they're successful. This brings us back to what we said before. Do we have politicians talented enough, skilled enough in diplomacy to make this happen, to threat this very fine needle, to allow Israel to respond, to kind of satisfy the, let's say, the domestic current coalition in power in Israel, but at the same time, kind of not provoke the Arab streets. So this is a very, very difficult thing to do. And yeah, if, if, they, if they make a misstep, this could be really, really troublesome.
And, and Andrew, obviously, you know, how do you feel? I mean, I, I, I listen to, to the Colonel, I, I, I listen to him elsewhere, and there's something, you know, very straightforward and, and cogent about that argument. Yeah. That this is just a situation that escalates inevitably. And it is interesting. I mean, it's a very interesting point about Washington being stuck in 1991. And there are so many questions to be answered. Um, I was talking to a number of people about Benjamin Netanyahu, and they're saying he's finished on this sort of basis. How did one of the best security forces in the world allow this to slip? And all sorts of speculations, all sorts of conspiracy theories come out as a result of it. Wag the dog, start a war to unite people and so on and so forth. You need to look at this, but remember that there are human lives at the end of it. And I think in amongst all this narrative, that's the problem. And the poison that we see in social media is now spilling out onto the streets. C Colonel, is there anyone close, anywhere near uh, President Biden who might be giving him at least some vestige of the of the theory and the logic that you're offering this evening? I doubt it. Uh, Washington is a very strange place. First of all, think of Washington as this impenetrable bubble. Uh, the, the people sitting on the hill in Washington have no more appreciation for the impact of inflation on the average American family uh, or the impact of immigration on the average American family than they have any appreciation for what's happening in the Middle East. And, and frankly, most of them, I don't think, care. They're, they've got their hands out for cash. And cash comes from many sources. All of those sources are pro-war, once again, because there's no appreciation for the dangers involved. I think at, at the end of the discussion, uh, there is a very important point that Professor Scholhammer made, and that is General Sisi in Egypt has worked tirelessly to maintain good relations with Israel. The last thing that he wants is a war. That's true for King Abdullah in Jordan. I would argue it's, it's true for virtually everybody. But they don't have much choice. And the question is, how many more thousands of Palestinians have to die in the bombings before someone sobers up? Does it have to happen after Hezbollah attacks? Because Hezbollah will inflict terrible losses on the Israelis. Or are we just committed unconditionally to fight this until Israel itself is destroyed. And that's my greatest fear, that it will reach that point where we can't pull back any longer and we cannot rescue the Israelis. It, it seems insane to me, after you know, decades or many years of multiculturalism, mass immigration, all of these uh, cultures which have not assimilated, have not integrated, they're living parallel lives throughout Europe and here in Britain, that after all of that, and we were being told that that was the right thing to do, to now put a, poke a stick mm. into what is effectively a wasp's nest. Why now? It seems like madness to me. I think it's madness, but it, it goes to... The, my big issue with multiculturalism is always it's actually the laziest of all ideologies, right? If, if Andrew says, you know, yes. you're a communist, and I say I'm a fascist, we immediately would have an argument, right? Because this, these, are, these are really clashing uh, oppositions. But the idea of multiculturalism was always... Basically, everything is of equal value. Like, the core value of multiculturalism is not to have a core value. So all these people that came, we never really showed an interest in them, right? The idea was whatever they bring, it doesn't matter. Their values, my values, it's all the same. And as you say, we completely ignored, we still ignore. Many of those groups don't like each other, right? So kind of we, we, need, we need to just import a clash between the quote-unquote, you know, 
white British population and all the, and, and immigration. It's also among immigration groups. We never made an effort to actually look at what those people think, what they believe. Ironically, the true multiculturalists, well, you know, the, the much damned British imperialists, they learned obscure languages in the last corner of the right. planet. They would have been curious who is coming to Britain. What do they think? What do they believe? What does it mean? What is taught in the schools? What is preached in the mosques? We turned a blind eye to it, and now, as you correctly say, we are all, you know, surprised that this is all of a sudden happening. Uh, Andrew, are we victims of our own... Oh, I think absolutely. And again, we, we were making such clear points beforehand. People forget the whole history of it. Uh, Suella Braverman was saying, look, multiculturalism doesn't work. It's all about integration. Um, but the interesting thing, and we touched on this in, in, in the break, because obviously the dialogue continues, is what is the solution? Because I think all four of us agree at the moment about the problems and the reason we've got here. And, and we can see a horrendous future unless people address that. So maybe we should lag it. What are the solutions? Colonel McGregor, is there... Is there a way out? I mean, do you, are, you, are you optimistic or pessimistic uh, that, we can, that, we can, that there's a way that can be navigated here? Or are, are we actually just going to have to watch a car crash and then pick through the wreckage? Uh, President Biden appears to be largely a cutout, largely a facade. The people who are governing country are a combination of elected and unelected people people that are, in, in Western terms, what we call in the Soviet or post-Soviet world, oligarch. Uh, I don't see how you turn them off. They're, the biggest problem is that whereas Putin and Xi, for instance, both have a very, very acute sense of limitations, they know what is or is not possible. They have long memories that involve wars that did enormous damage to them. In the United States, there is no sense of limitation right now. There's no sense that we only have so many resources. In fact, it's the opposite. You heard President Biden reading from the speech that was written for him. The United States of America can do anything. We can finance multiple wars at the same time. We can do anything. We are the America of the Second World War. Well, that America, Neil, never really existed anyway. We were always limited in what we could do. In fact, that's why Eisenhower made such an excellent president. He understood that we could never fight another war like that again in our history. We've lost all of that. There's no fear of the consequences. As a result, I'm not very optimistic. I think that we are going to march down this path into hell, a hell, frankly, of our own making, and one that is unnecessary. When did the sophistication and the nuance and the appreciation, as, as, as uh, Ralph Schulhammer was saying, you know, this idea that, you know, we used to pay attention to one another's cultures. You know, there was a time when there was a curiosity and there was, you know, there was an attempt made to assimilate and to make room for. When did we become, when did we lose that sensitivity to other people? I think it began in the aftermath of the Second World War and it's gotten progressively worse over the years. And unfortunately, this sense of superpower uniqueness in the 1990s simply accelerated the problem. And now, none of it is true. Americans are not stupid people. They're looking at immigration and they're waking up to a nightmare. They're saying, well, wait a minute, these people haven't come here to become Americans. Well, of course not. They're setting up their own countries with their own grievances, their own preferences, their own set of hatreds on, their, on our soil. We don't like it, we don't want it. Well, it's here. And the question that I continue to ask is, where have you been? Well. People were asleep. They were too busy watching television, too busy enjoying the good life. And they were dismissing problems out of hand. And they listened to the propaganda. 
If you raise questions, well, you must be a bigot. If you don't like something, you're an anti-Semite. On and on and on. And Americans are not any of those things by nature. In fact, I think we're shamelessly tolerant, something which I blame, blame in part the British for. We're too damn tolerant. And it's costing us dearly here at home, and it's going to cost us overseas. Ralph, who do you blame for this loss, if we're agreed that there's just been a loss of nuance, a loss of awareness, a loss of paying attention? Who has driven that retrograde step? Well, I think a lot of it, and I'm curious to hear the, the other members of the panel, I think a lot of this, there is a sense of, and I think this was driven particularly after World War II, I think there is a sense of kind of collective guilt within the West, right? That we have to atone for what we have done to other cultures, imperialism, colonialism. And I think that's partially true, although if you take a closer look again at history, you'll see everybody was imperialist. Uh, you know, everybody was colonialist. Isn't that something that the Europeans invented? If I would be cynical, I would say in some cases we were just better than the rest. Um, but I think there is now this idea that we have to atone for this. And you see this then in the immigration debate. It's kind of come to us. We will not ask you to change. We will not ask you to integrate. And this is then us showing that now we are no longer these bad people that we were in the past. That on the long run, I think we don't do these people a favor. Uh, it's also important to mention, because if you don't offer someone to integrate into, what do we expect? Right? I, I can tell you, know, in, in Austria and Germany, people come and the first thing you see, hear people say is, well, we are so sorry we are German. Why would anybody who come integrate into this? You want to integrate into a culture that is confident. You want to integrate into a culture that has a backbone. I mean, it is no coincidence, right, that people like, you know, Andrew Tate convert to Islam because it has swagger, right? It seems like something that they stand up for what they believe in. We might disagree with what they believe in, but at least they stand up for it. And that has, I would say, a certain attraction, particularly for young people. And where do we see kind of the most attraction to it? Among young people. And I think we are, again, this is a very risky game we're playing. It's a fascinating conversation. I have to say on behalf of, uh, you know, everyone here and, 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 uh, and Colonel McGregor, it's such a relief to me, at least, to hear this conversation take place on you know, mainstream television, because at least, at least, if there's to be any hope at all, it's based on people getting this kind of general understanding of the scale of the problem. So, Colonel McGregor, thank you so much for making time for us this evening, and I hope our, our paths cross again soon.